done. Could you open up the 1 Corinthians chapter 4? We're just going to look at two verses today. Verses 6 and 7. And while you turn there, I just want to begin with uh, two weeks ago, a very famous theologian in evangelical world passed away. His name was J.I. Packard. And he died at the ripe old age of 93. He lived a good long time. He has written 45, what I would say, very, very helpful books for churches, pastors, people. But his, uh, what I would say is his masterpiece is this book right here. It's called Knowing God. If you have never read this book, I'd really encourage you to get this book, read it. The whole objective is to dis- discuss the wonder and the magne- magnitude and the majesty and the power of God. I can remember having to read this my freshman year at seminary for systematic theology. I can remember going down into the library of Moody Bible Institute in a corner cubicle and just reading through this book and just wondering about the the immensity of God. He's amazing. But in the preface of this book, he says something very interesting. He says, ignorance of God, ignorance in the form of knowing his ways, his works, and also communion with him, ignorance of God lies at the root of much of the church's weaknesses or weakness. This is profound if you let it sink in. He's saying the main problem with the church is that we often miss the one thing we are about, and that is knowing Him. We assume we know Him, but we are so quick to focus on ourselves, on our interests, on what we want to get out of the church, rather than coming to just simply know Him, to learn of Him. So Packer's point is this, is that the problems arising in the church are not so much from disagreements about philosophy, policy, and even practices, like for instance wearing masks, how should we rightly view COVID, or even our willingness to get involved in racial equality, which is important. He is saying those aren't the main, those aren't the main issues. The main issue where the church falls short is that we so easily forget Him. We so easily forget how amazing He is. And we focus on ourselves. And this is the whole problem with the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church forgot God. Let's uh, stand. I want us to read verses 6 and 7 today. And the title of this is Giving Credit Where Credit is Due. Verses 6 and 7, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? You may be seated. Those are the two verses we're going to look at. From, the, from just reading them, they're hard to grasp. But we're going to walk through it very slowly. But before we get to these two verses, I want to tell you a story, a very true story, 
as I'm going to walk through it, you're probably going to say, oh, that's, that's not a true story, but it is. And I'm calling this story all about Eric. My, my senior year in college, I went to the University of Dayton. It was coming to a close. I had one final presentation to give before I, I graduated with a Bachelor of Science in Marketing. In this final required class, all of the graduating marketing students had to form teams of four to basically study a whole marketing campaign of a popular product at that day. We picked La Quinta Inns. And then do a formal presentation to the marketing department. We had five professors and one business dean that would watch us and grade our final presentation. And in order to get your degree, it had to pass. So really, in a sense, my whole four years of undergraduate culminated in one class. When forming the team, I wanted to join with students I knew would work hard, and I looked for people that could do different things than I. For instance, I, I like to present and make slides, which is kind of obvious, kind of works into what I do now. There was a lady in our class that liked to do marketing research and she loved statistics and she hated speaking. So her and I were like, hey, let's work together. We had a third guy that liked to write papers, liked to edit papers. He's very verbal. So he joined our team. So we had an original group of three, but we needed one more person to join our team. A few minutes across the class, came strolling a student named Eric. I knew Eric very well because Eric was on my rugby team and I tried to avoid his gaze. I did not want Eric on my team. He would not be a good asset. The problem is Eric got to the shy girl in our group and he asked her, hey, do you mind if I join your team? And he talked just like that. And she said, sure. That will make four. And I was like, oh, no. Eric turned to me, shook my hand, and said, I knew this was the group to join. This will be great. So for three long months of that semester, our team had to meet once a week out of class to check on our progress and to knock off syllabus requirements. And if you don't know what a syllabus is, Nola Carew will help you with that. Syllabus is something you, that we had to turn in every week to make sure we were working our plan. Eric, however, rarely showed up to any of our meetings. The other members really didn't care after a while because they realized he didn't add anything to the team. They said, actually, we got more done when he wasn't there. Well, one day at rugby practice, I saw Eric and I said, where have you been? He said, take it easy, man. Take it easy, Weeks. It'll be all right. We'll get this done. He goes, and by the way, our next meeting, I'm going to be at a party, so I won't be there. Okay. All right. Needless to say, after three months, Eric did nothing as the final day for the presentation approached. We had one last meeting before we had to give our 30-minute presentation, and the syllabus requirement said every person on the team had to do some part of the presentation. Didn't say how long, but they had to be a part of it. So it was decided I would do the majority each member would do a small part, but what do we do with Eric? We decided we would let Eric wrap up all our conclusions at the very end. Gave him a couple minutes. That would fulfill the requirement. So it was the day for the final. 
The team showed up 15 minutes before we were scheduled to make sure we had everything ready. I came in a suit, as did the other a guy on our team. The shy girl wore a snappy dress and a sweater combo. We all looked very professional, but where was Eric? Ten minutes to go, and he still wasn't there. Five minutes, and I finally saw him walking down the hall. He was wearing a red dress, red high heels, fake bosoms, a wig, makeup, and he was drunk. I was, uh, I was a bit furious with Eric, but we had to make a presentation. The show must go on. So for the first three quarters of the presentation, it was spot on. The original team did their work, did a great work, and then it was Eric's turn. He gets up, walks up, and it kind of looks like this. We'd be in the presentation, and the, actually the uh, professors were in the second row just kind of looking at us. They were writing notes. And Eric gets up and he goes, he goes, hello, how are you? Kind of snickered a little bit. And then all he did is he read word by word what was on the PowerPoint presentation. But the problem was all of his words found, sounded like he had marbles in his mouth because he drank quite a bit before he got there. Then he finished, did a bow. He might have even done a curtsy. I don't remember. I was too mad at that point. And he left the stage. It was horrible. Like horrible. When we were given the results, the dean praised the research, the slides, the paper, but gave an incredibly low grade on the overall presentation. Because here's what he said. If this was a serious business deal, the unprofessionalism that your team showed would have caused any client to never want to hire you. Our final overall grade was given and we just, like, we squeaked by. We barely passed. After that, we went out into the hall, and Eric was smiling, so cocky, smug. He said, oh, I knew we'd pass. Finally, I'm done with this education thing. I'm out of here. I'm graduating. He tried to give us each a high five, but no one did because they wanted to kill him. In his final words as he went down the hall, glad I'm done with that class. Now I can go back to the party. He walked away laughing. How do you think the three of us felt at that moment? Here was a guy who did nothing, taking credit for all the hard we did, work we did over three months, and he didn't even say thank you because we helped him pass the hardest class probably in his whole four years of college. He was rude, presumptuous, and ungrateful. How would you feel if you saw a guy almost ruin everything you have worked so hard for? He clearly did not know how to give credit where credit was due. Now if you understand that and you can feel that feeling, now you know how Paul feels to the Corinthian church. Here is the apostle who planted the church, who preached the gospel, got people saved, and now they want to kick him out. They don't want him around. They didn't even say thank you to him. And they're boasting about themselves and all these other leaders. Now, if you understand the story, now you know how God often feels about us. He does everything, every single day. And we often take the credit for 
how he made us, what we get done, as if he hasn't given us an ounce of grace. It's all my. I did everything. When he's the one who lets me live and move and have my being. We need to, what Paul is going to say, start giving credit where credit is due. That's what this whole passage is about. It's funny, this morning, or actually yesterday, I go over my sermon, and I like to sit out in the front and you know, mark stuff that doesn't sound good. Usually, uh, Aaron Vanderwess will ride by on his bike and say, Hi, Pastor Chris, you know, like that. Hi, Aaron. And then I was looking at my garden and the bee balm that was given to me from Sue Scott are, oh, they're, they're about four feet tall and red. And then I have a lot of lilies that are yellow and orange. And I just did some weeding and I'm like, man, did I do a good job in my garden. Who made the bee balm red? Who made the lily yellow? Who makes the lilac purple and smell like perfume? Jesus clothes the lilies of the field, and yet we often take credit for his beauty. So, that's what we're going to talk about. In verse 6, Paul has reached the limit of his patience. And now he's going to once and for all confront people in the church who are causing divisions. If you remember chapter 3, he's talking about how some people say, well, I'm with Paul, I'm with Apollos, I'm with Peter. And they're arguing over who's the best. And they're arguing over which team is better. And listen to what Paul says in verse 6. I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. He says two things. Number one, he says, I've applied all these things to myself. That means... The two chapters preceding this, he first of all examined his own heart. And he basically said at the beginning of chapter 4, all I am is a steward. So you could say it like this. Before Paul confronted them, he first applied truth to himself. He saw himself rightly first. He took the log out of his own eye before he goes to others. Did you know that verse in Matthew 7 when he says, when you go to judge someone, Take the log out of your eye first. Did you know that he's saying after you take the log out, you still can talk to other people about where they need to grow, but don't do it until you examine yourself first. We often take that as don't judge anybody. No, we are to admonish one another. But the second thing he's saying here is he is saying that their issue is being puffed up, proud, boasting, comparing one to another, and forming teams. He says it in a strange way, though. He says, um, brothers, really that word is brothers and sisters, I want you to learn not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up. What does he mean, don't go beyond what is written? It's a difficult phrase, but most scholars say, don't read too deep in it. What he's saying is he already gave, he already said something that he's just referring back to. Look at 1 Corinthians 1. And he's saying, don't go beyond this verse. 1 Corinthians 1, 31. And verse 131 says this, So as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So he's saying, don't go beyond that. What that means is, all right, 
Give your praise where it's due and stop there. Stop there. Corinthians have forgotten this simple truth. There's only one thing any of us can legitimately boast about, and it's that we know God. That's it. It's actually a reference back to Jeremiah chapter 9, 23 and 24. It's a very popular verse. You can write it down, but I would really advise you to learn this verse. Here's what, it, what Jeremiah writes. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this. That he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord. That's it. Don't go beyond that. As a result of their ignoring this passage, Paul says that they started boasting in themselves. They've been boasting in talents of people they follow and comparing, like drunk Eric, who doesn't. Give credit where credit is due. What they've done is, what happens in, when you forget about God, you start to see yourself bigger than you actually are. That is where verse 7 comes in. If we go to 1 Corinthians 4, 7, listen to verse 7. This is, this is meant to be like a punch in the gut. It reads kind of oddly in ESV. I'll interpret it in the NIV. But here's what the ESV says. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So these are the three questions. So verse 7, Paul is asking these three questions to get you thinking. They get the Corinthians thinking. The first question is this. Who makes you different from anyone else? Who formed you? Who gave you your intelligence? Some of you are really smart. But who gave that intelligence to you? How about your strength? Who gave you your strength? Who gave you your, your beauty? Oh, it was my filter on Instagram. If I just pose this way and I get sepia and I look at just right, I look beautiful and it, I take out all the wrinkles. I'm gorgeous. No, who, who really is the one that gave you your looks? Who gave you your athletic ability? I'll tell you, I have a son, my oldest son, Joseph. He's going to kill me for saying this. You should see what he eats on a regular basis, Doritos and cheese puffs. But his body is like, what? He doesn't even work out. And he looks like Adonis. What, uh, Joe, what is this? I could, eat, I could eat the same thing and I would be 400 pounds. Who gives you that body, God? God does. How about your musical talent? How about your ability to make a big paycheck? Do you take credit for what was given you? That's why the second question is, what do you have that you did not receive? In Him, we live, we move, and we have our being. Colossians 1 says He holds all things together. What if He let go? And then the final question, if you did receive it, if you were given it, why do you boast? Why do you boast as if you earned it? 
Eric did nothing, and yet he's like, I did it. You did nothing. We kind of are like drunk Eric. Look at me compared to everybody else. It's, in God's eyes, it's, it's not accurate. Boasting is a real problem in the church even to this day. We boast about rather insignificant things, our denomination, our church size, our pastors, our buildings, our programs, our softball teams, our style of music, and who is more socially woke or who is more hardcore fundamentalist. We even boast about what, in some sense, even about miracles that God does as if it's about us. We're more special because God does more work at our church. It's about God, not us. Boasting is the result of comparing ourselves with others, and comparing is a sign we have forgotten about the grace we've been given. I'll say that again. Boasting is a result of comparing ourselves with others, and comparing is a sign we've forgotten about the grace we've been given. In plain language, when we start boasting, it's a clear sign we've forgotten God. We've forgotten God. And when you forget God, what happens is you cause divisions. Disunity, because you're comparing. Let me give you another story about another person. The case of Job. There was a man and a group of men in the Old Testament who for the most part forgot God. They were ignorant of who he truly was. They recognized him, they acknowledged him, but they didn't really know to some degree what they were talking about when they talked about God. And because they forgot God, they started comparing among themselves. Job and the other men, his bad counselors, were talking about their righteousness. The story starts off with Job, who was a good man. And Satan went to God and said, hey, can I kind of mess Job's life up, see if he worshiped you anymore? So God said, all right, go ahead, just don't kill him. So Job's life began to crumble. His kids died. His wife was on his case. Why don't you just forget God? And his health was hanging on the end of a thread. He would scrape his sores because it was, he was in such bad shape. After 38 chapters of listening to these men, probably like an equivalent of a long Facebook argument, God had enough. He had enough. He needed to confront their ignorance, and he did this by having a face-to-face -face conversation with Job. I want you to go to Job chapter 38. Imagine being Job. Job is right before the book of Psalms. So turn to Psalms in the middle. Go left. And go to Job 38. So God was going to confront Job and these men. And basically, he's going to speak into words that they were speaking that they had no idea what they were saying. They were ignorant. And in Job 38, God says this in verse 1. The Lord answered Job out of a whirlwind, and he said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? So he's speaking to Job. He goes, Job, all right, you've been speaking a lot. I haven't said anything, and I'm not sure you know what you're talking about. So verse 3 he says, dress for action like a man. Other versions say, brace yourself. Sort of like, get ready, I'm going to question you. 
and you will have to answer me, or you make it known to me. And here's the first question. And when he asks the first question, if you can't answer the first question, there's no reason to go on to any more. And I'm going to ask you, can you answer this first question? So here it is. Okay, Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Boy, I'd love to ask this question to scientists. Oh, the Big Bang, huh? Where Were you there? Were you... We can't even get the COVID numbers right. You want to get something right that happened thousands of years ago? Where were you? Chris, where were you? All right. Job, where were you? Uh, well, I probably, I was on your, on your table in eternity, and I had 10,000 years to go before I was to come to earth. So I was nowhere. I wasn't even a twinkle in my, my mom's eye yet because I wasn't even there yet. When God made the world, no one existed. We weren't any part of it. We had no say in where he would put the different continents. We had no say in how he'd make animals look. I wish I had a say in some of the animals. There's some weird-looking animals. Why did, you make, why did you make those animals? But I had no say. We have come late on the scene, and we are enjoying, we are living in the knowledge others have discovered before us. And what's ironic is because we now live in this knowledge that others have discovered for us, we actually think we're smarter than those who have first discovered it. It's called historical arrogance. No, we have, we have gleaned what they have given us. But the more humiliating dialogue is found in Job 40. Starting in verse 6. So he's going to keep, so chapter 38 and 39, he kept asking more and more questions. But Job 40, verse 6. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Okay, got another one for you. Dress for action like a man. That means brace yourself. Get ready. I'm going to question you and you need to answer me. I'll make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? What he's saying is a lot of people. When they don't understand the way God does things, they almost condemn him. Why did you do this? Why would God, they get mad at God as if they know more than God. He's saying, would you condemn me so you are in the right? Have you an arm like God and can you thunder with a voice like his? Okay, let's say you think you can compare yourself to God. Here's what I want you to do, verse 10. Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then I will acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. Here's what he's saying. You think you can compare with God? All right, every proud man, take him on and destroy him. Destroy him. Rule the earth right now. Let me see you do that. If you can do that, then, I'll, then I'll, I will admit you're an equal. But you can't. I was, any of you watched that bomb in Beirut this past week? It's kind of a smaller mushroom cloud. An explosive factory blew up. And thousands of people were just knocked over. 100 people died. Could you imagine being 100 feet away from that bomb and say, all right, I can stand this. Come on, bring that bomb on. I saw a video of these girls that were in a store when it happened. 
and they saw the fire go up, and then they kind of go out, and then they see this mushroom cloud, and they run in, and the doors shatter, and the girl's blown back, and she's knocked. It's a terrible video. And it's just one teeny little bomb. Imagine standing next to a volcano. It says a volcano is just the breath of God's mouth. It's nothing for him. Who are we? That's why in Job chapter 42, he says, Job chapter 42, 1, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, Job says, I despise myself and I repent. In other words, I realize I boast too much. I think too highly of myself. And my mouth is shut. I need to learn. I have some interesting quotes from another theologian that passed away a while ago. His name's A.W. Tozier. I want you just to listen to these verses. That's another, that's heavy an arm like God. Listen to what he says. First one he says is God is real. He is real in the absolute and final sense that nothing else is. All other reality is contingent upon his reality. So if he didn't exist, none of us would. This next one's really interesting. Begin where we will. That means begin where you start. Wherever you start, wherever you want to begin, God was there first. God is not contained. He contains. He does not have to give an account to us for his being. It's so funny when people get mad at God as if he has to give an account to us. We live because he allows us to. But here's the most interesting one by Tozier. Think of this real closely. Were every man on earth to become atheist, it could not affect God in any way. He is what he is in himself without regard to any other. To believe in him adds nothing to his perfections. To doubt him takes nothing away. In other words, you can say God is not insecure. People are insecure, and so they like to be encouraged. They want people to talk nice about them. God doesn't feel better because we come to worship. He already is better. God wants you to come to worship him because it's the best thing for you. That's why we do it. He wants to bless you. He doesn't need it. He knows you need it. I was talking with somebody as explaining to him. He asked me, what am I going to preach about? And he goes, well, all right, what, are, what is the response? What are the five responses of somebody that gets it? That gets it. They've got to stop boasting and they start need to giving credit where credit's due. What are five responses of somebody who gives credit where credit's due? First thing is this. Gratitude for everything. There's a very interesting chapter in Luke. Luke chapter 13, 1 through 5. Jesus is basically commenting on the, the, the disasters that happen in the world. And the disciples are like, why do those happen? Are people evil? He said, no, actually, all the disasters we deserve. 
we should just be grateful they didn't happen to us. You could say it like this. Did you know we all deserve COVID-19? The reason we don't have it is because God's gracious. Flips it upside on its head. We should be grateful that we have food and a healthy family and we can come and worship. Second thing, if you understand this rightly, have active listening. Start listening actively. That means instead of coming quickly to conclusions, listen to what people are saying. I once heard that love, and I need to be better at this, that love in conversation is able to articulate another person's point of view better than they can say it themselves. So before you answer or retaliate, listen to what they're saying. Even in this, um, there's, a, there's a guy named George Yancey. He's an African-American theologian in Texas. And he's trying to help break this racial divide. And he says the first thing we got to do is listen to the other side on both sides before we argue. Listen. Have you listened? Third thing is zero defensiveness when somebody points out my faults. That's hard. But what that acknowledges is I'm limited and I do need other people's opinions. That's hard. Fourth one, stop boasting. If you want to read a psalm that is so good, it's Psalm 86, especially in the NLT. It's incredible. It talks about God, please bend down to hear me. I need you right now. And then this person I was talking to, and I'm saying he said this because it wasn't my suggestion, because if it's my suggestion, you might say, of course this is your suggestion. But he said, here's what people need in the church. They need to defer to godly authority, to pastors, to parents, to godly brothers and sisters in the church that are, are living a godly life because we need each other. And he said, really, one of the biggest problems is leaders aren't respected as much as they used to be. Like Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would not be an advantage to you. And I'm, this is his suggestion, but I think he's right. I think we've lost respect for authority because God does put people in place, puts parents, gives you a mom and a dad, gives you teachers, gives you pastors, and gives you brothers and sisters to help you not boast. So instead of boasting and taking credit that is not ours to take, let us serve one another. Christ wants unity in His church. To do all for the glory of God and not factions, not to compete. As J.I. Packard said, ignorance of God lies at the root of the church's weakness. I'm going to have one last little story, and I want you to hold on to this. I'm not going to explain it, but I think it will say enough. There's a story about a person who went to visit a mental hospital. And on his arrival, he was astounded to note that there were only three guards watching over a hundred dangerous inmates in this mental asylum. He asked his guide that was showing him around, don't you fear that these people will overpower the guards and escape? 
And the guide said no. And he said, because lunatics never unite. 